Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Lewis and Ann speak with Dr. Bill Levine, founder and chief science officer of CanRx, a biotech company that develops proprietary, scientifically-based medical and adult-use cannabis products that have consistent therapeutic effects. Dr. Levine is a highly sought-out speaker and resource for the cannabis industry, and he was just named Cannabis and Tech Today's Innovator of the Year for 2019. The guy has some serious cred. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to our conversation with Dr. Bill Levine of CanRx. Hey, Ann, how are you? Hey, Lewis. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. It's a not our normal recording day. We usually record on Fridays. I know. I kind of want to like go home after this. It's my usual <laughs> sketch. I, I would also like to go home after this. I'm actually playing pickleball tonight, so that's that's oh, my. Oh really? That's such a big thing out here too. I haven't played it yet. It is. It's it's like standing on a ping pong table and whacking the shit out of the ball and just having a lot of fun. I, oh. I yeah, totally. Melissa got me into it. She's been playing now for months, and I've been playing for like a couple of months, and it has become like my favorite physical activity. Seems um, like a good outlet for aggression. It is because it's, you know, it's a pink, it's a, it's a wiffle ball. And, you know, no matter how hard you hit it, you can't <laughs> hit it that hard. Well, don't hurt yourself, please. Oh, I, I'm sure I'll figure out a way to do that. I, I can, I can, I can hurt myself freaking, you know, opening up a, a seltzer bottle. We just did a really interesting podcast with Bill Levine from CanRx. Um, you know, We've been working with Israeli companies at KCSA for decades, literally decades. And they are all staffed by some of the smartest, most creative people in the world. And this is another one of those companies. I, I love them. They're a challenge to work with at times. Um, CanRx has not been, but, but Israeli companies can be a challenge. And, and this is a really, it's just, I, th I found the conversation to be fascinating. I think, I, yeah, I love the, the talk of the science behind it. And I definitely am going to go down some Google rabbit holes, um, you know, just on, on some of the stuff that, that he talked about. And I'd love to have him back um, because I, I think there's so much missing in when it comes to the, you know, what's proven and what's not proven. What are we calling snake oil? What are we not calling snake oil? Um, you know, I, and I think that's just the fascinating side of it. And I think the the only way, you know, for this, you know, industry to, to move forward is with, with more study, more data, um, you know, and more application. So I, I love these kind of conversations. And, and that's why I think what's happening in Israel is so interesting because it's legal there um, for medicinal use. <coughs> I think Lewis needs you know, some. He's still coughing. Yeah. I, it hasn't gone away. But, you know, because it's legal there for medicinal use, they're able to do real clinical trials. And, I, you know, that is, that is what the industry really needs. You know, everybody is so focused on the adult use market, but the, the, the medical market is still massively underdeveloped. There's huge opportunity. And as much as everybody is so happy and excited about being able to walk into a dispensary to, you know, to, to buy cannabis legally, 
you know, the, the roots of this industry were medical and it, it got passed from a medical perspective for a reason. It wasn't about getting high. It was about getting well. And the wellness part of this industry is really being researched most in Israel. Yeah. So I think you guys are going to really like this episode. It's very cool. Cool. All right. Shay, roll that tape. <laughs> You're a dork. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Before we jump into all the stuff about your company, I have to ask, how does a periodontist become a cannabis entrepreneur and somebody who wins Cannabis and Technology Today's Innovator of the Year for 2019? Well, that actually is a very good question. So first of all, thank you for inviting me to the program. It's, uh, it's an honor to be uh, interviewed by you. The, it is an interesting question, and I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the, the short version of the story, really, is that um, the way we treat periodontal, I'm a periodontist by training, so it's a, uh, it's, we specialize in inflammation and gum infection, and basically the solutions that were being given <clears throat> by the practitioners really were not meeting the needs of the, the patients and the consumers. And there was nothing in the industry pipeline that was going to be able to provide that solution to the best of my knowledge. So we ended up looking, we set, we got together a small group of creative individuals and we looked at it completely out of the box for potential solutions. And we ended up sort of looking in the botanical world and plant source material, looking for bioactive or you know, pharmaceutically active compounds. And we ended up basically developing a platform of, botanical products that can actually reduce the inflammation and enhance the repair of tissue. And that enabled us to control the periodontal disease. So we've developed uh, an array of products, a rinse, a, a topical patch, which is very interesting because it only adheres when wet as opposed to when dry, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, that at, when we understood what we had accomplished here, we basically the knowledge, the know-how, and the, the intellectual property that we had created, we actually uh, became a company that specializes in botanical medicine. So we took our knowledge base from dentistry. We went into chronic wound care, women's health care, oncology support, and some other interesting uh, healthcare areas where we felt that we could utilize our understanding of plant material, how we break it apart, how we put it back together to optimize its therapeutic benefit, and understand its biologic mechanism of action to create better healthcare products. So when we when we realized that we were looking at cannabis as a highly pharmacologically active plant material, and if you look at the data that exists in the cannabis area, which is that it's not just active in getting high, it's active in a broad range of high need areas, which include uh, um, diabetes, it has good data on, it seems to have some data and potential impact on the dementia type diseases, Alzheimer's and others. It, there good, there's good data on glaucoma and clearly well, data on pain and sleep. So an anti, an anti-inflammation as well, right? I mean, there are, there are, I mean, and, and I would assume from a periodontal perspective, that's what you were looking at, right? It's like, it is a, a disease of inflammation of the gums. And it's like, okay, what else is there? So interestingly enough, though, the inflammatory data that we have is interestingly, uh, there's a lot of talk about it, 
but the data is all in the non-clinical stages. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so I like that. I believe it's true from a mechanism of action standpoint. It makes sense, but you know, in the end, you have to prove that in a complex system of the human body, it still holds true. You know, you're you're an Israeli company, and we're going to get into that. Um, the U.S. can't do right now clinical research on cannabis. You know, it's a federal one, a schedule one federal illegal substance, but Israel, it's not. And there is a lot of research going on, whether it be at Hadassah Hospital or um, at the Technion all over all over the country. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the research that your company CanRx is doing? And I know I'm jumping ahead, but you opened the door and I got to walk through it. <laughs> no problem. I'm always happy to be a, an, an open door policy. The, um, so basically, uh, you're right. The Israeli government uh, is much more supportive of the uh, cannabis research industry than the United States government. I do believe that will change with time, um, but uh, there are trials going on here, and we are actually running some trials here as well. In addition to that, though, one of the problems we have when you, you're in a small country and you're run, trying to run a large trial is, are there enough patients who are willing to enroll in the trial to meet your needs in a timely way? So you you, all, you have to marry the the you know the environment of uh, uh, enabling the trial and the volume of patients that you have. So we actually are also now about to start some trials in the United States. Um, and so I, I can't really disclose yet because we're not under contract, but all the, uh, but we will be making it, you know, letting people know about that sometime in the next, uh, during the next two months or so. Okay. So from one Jewish cannabis business executive to another, what is it about this industry that attracts us? And and you're in a country of 8 million Jews and you're telling me that you can't find enough people to enroll in one of these trials? <laughs> so fair, fair question. So what, what I, what I think attracts us to the cannabis industry is its potential. Um, for, really for the purpose of getting high that, you know, that, that's okay. I, you know, I see it, it's a recreational product and I'm in favor of it, but that's not what it would have attracted me. What attracts me is the ability to, A, provide a controlled high to those who want a controlled high. For example, I call them the reuser population, those who used it in their youth, but now they're in their late 60s, early 70s, are happy to go back to this, but now, but they want to have a controlled high. They don't want to be out of control. Two, the potential medicinal applications, which are very exciting. And um, we're, we're, that's, that's, that's what attracts me to, the, the complexity of the plant the ability to mine out core data which can impact on people's lives and the and the challenge that's involved from a regulatory perspective i don't mind the challenge that's what makes me uh, energized well, so as fun as it was to go down Lewis's rabbit hole, um, can we rewind a little <laughs> bit? <laughs> and uh, can you just tell us about CanRx? What is it you guys do? Um, question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So, <laughs> so what we what we looked at, if you remember the background, we came from a company called Izun Pharmaceuticals, which specializes in botanical medicine. So what we our, our, our area of expertise is really taking botanical material with all the variability and all the inconsistencies that are there, understanding what makes this work and how to de des design a process which will give you a dose a dose, a clear dose, a clear effect therapeutic, which you can use in, in, in healthcare needs. 
Because basically a patient who takes a product for a healthcare need wants to feel better. So what we looked at the cannabis industry and the first, we, we basically said there are, there are three major problems. Number one, how do you pull out the bioactives from the cannabis plant? Number two, and what's the most effective way to do that? Because without being able to do that, you're still stuck in smoking mode and an inconsistent product. <clears throat> two, um, you need to be able to design the right cannabis formulation for the right indication. What helps you treat pain is not going to help you treat glaucoma or diabetes or many of the other diseases that are being studied now. And the third aspect is um, basically, how do we get this cannabis into your body in a precise way, in a measured dose? Because cannabinoids are notorious for being poorly absorbed. And the, the absorption is what's called variable, so that some days it may be absorbed rapidly if you've had a fatty meal, and some days it may be absorbed very poorly. So when you're dealing with a, a, a healthcare product or even a high recreational product, you want to know that you can design a consistent effect. So those were the three pillars that we said have to be changed in order to come out with effective cannabis-based products. So if to delve into each one, briefly at least, we looked at cannabis and we said, first of all, we have 3,000 years of data of people extracting the cannabis bioactives by either smoking it, which is combustion, or vaporizing it, basically putting on the fire and inhaling the smoke, which is basically, or putting on the, the heating element and inhaling the smoke, which is, which is vaporizing it. If you change the way you extract that product in, 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 from the plant, you change the entire nature of the plant, and you've basically tossed out 3,000 years of, of empirical data and anecdotal data, which is very valuable. And so what we did was, you know, I, I, some people ask me, what am I talking about? And basically I say, listen, if I gave you a cigarette and I said, smoke it in uh, soak it in alcohol and eat it, and it'll be like smoking, we all know it's not correct. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, gross. Ugh. That's gr well, okay. I mean, cigarettes in general are gross, but yeah. Okay, but now flip that story around and say, great, I'm going to give you a carrot. I'm going to say vaporize it. Are you <laughs> getting a carrot? Not really. That's exactly what's happened in the industry. We needed to extract product. They had no technology to do it. So they grabbed onto existing food extraction technologies like CO2, like alcohol, like butane and propane. And these were designed not for cannabis. These were designed for food. So it, we, we did was we created a new system. We call it vapor capture technology, which is very simple conceptually. We basically vaporize at precise thermal um, temperatures. And we basically create a very controlled plume of all the bioactives, the cannabinoids, the terpenes, and the unidentified elements that you would get if you vaporize this material. We put it through specific solubilization chambers, and we end up with a pure oil, no excipients, no solvents, to solvent-free extraction. And it's exactly the material that you'd get if you smoked or vaporizing it without all the harmful potential constituents that would come out from that process. We clean those out. On top of that, one of the nice parts about the technology is it actually cleans out the pesticides. It leaves the pesticides in the biomass. So if, and we know that in agricultural products, pesticides always get in somehow or another in certain batches, and they're terrible for you from a health perspective. So we actually clean them out. You can actually, as far as we're concerned, grow with pesticides. We can leave them in the biomass. 
<clears throat> and give you a pesticide-free extract. And the other piece that's nice about it is we actually have no, if, we, if you have mold or mildew, we actually remediate that completely. So not only do we get rid of the mold and mildew, but we get rid of all the aflatoxins, which are the untreated toxins, which get into your material from the mold and mildew, which is endemic in the, in the cannabis growth. And is at this point, start, the government is starting to be aware that there are major problems associated with this, but we don't have that issue. We remediate that completely. So we get a cleaner and more precise oil, which we believe is the ideal therapeutic profile that you could pull out of the cannabis plant. So we're going to actually launch that this year. We actually have one unit here in Israel, actually two, and we're going to be citing another two in the United States during the next uh, few months. I have to imagine that's great news for cultivators who, you know, let's say they had a bad crop. I mean, that that allows them to recapture at least some of their investment if they, you know, if they know that this technology is available and they can strip out, you know, some of the mold or, you know, anything that's kind of crept in there. Um, and I would assume a lot of requests from local growers for that purpose. And I, I would assume that this is applicable not just to the THC side of this, but for CBD, which you know, it's taking off like a, a rocket ship. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's correct. And actually that sort of goes into the next aspect of it. Um, you know, it's like you said, CBD has been great for epilepsy, right? And it's actually well proven now. I mean, Charlotte Webbs and the, uh, you know, the, the uh, I think the Finky brothers really made a breakthrough from an anecdotal perspective. But the, uh, but the, Proof of the pudding came from GW Farmer when they ran a major trial and proved that they, they were correct all along. So CBD is a great product. I don't know where else it's going to go. Let's let's all we all let's all agree on the fact that the claims are slightly inflated nowadays, but there's a certain a great potential behind the product. It hasn't been on, slightly, know. slightly inflated. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> it's snake oil, Fair enough. you know, this yeah. cures cancer. This will cure foot fungus. This, it's like, <laughs> come on. You're trying to be that. politically correct. <laughs> you definitely have not listened to our podcast before. <laughs> that's, that's about as far Fair away enough. from who at least I am as possible. Okay, so I um, I'll try to morph into your mode. <laughs> oh, please don't. That's okay. <laughs> I can only handle one at a time. Yeah, you be you be you, I'll be me, and we'll we'll all be happy with that that you know division of labor. Um, but you know, so you that what you were describing was uh, was your vapor capture technology, and you know, it also seems that especially for the um, the cannabis companies up north, the canopy growths of the world, that they are so focused on drinks, like they have all made these huge bets that people are wanna, going to want to drink cannabis. And you guys are working on water soluble, water soluble. I can say this: water soluble, water soluble, bioavailable solutions. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. So basically, one of the arms that we looked at was how do we get cannabis into the body in an efficient way? And what we, often what we want to do is learn from nature. So when, when you take a food into your body, it gets absorbed into your blood system and it doesn't just float around. The nutrients don't just float around in your blood. They actually get picked up in a very efficient way. It's absolutely like a, a mass transport system where the proteins pick up the molecules, transport them around the body and deliver them to where they're supposed to go. And when there's toxic elements that get released into the bloodstream, they actually pick those up on the way out and drop them off in the liver and other areas to be detoxified. So we basically mimicked the, the, what they call the, the, trans, the protein transporter system in the body. 
So we, we take proteins and if you, a protein is basically like a rubber band rubbed between your hands and wrapped up and it has a very convoluted shape. And there are little pockets between the parts of the protein. So we actually have a technology where we can pack the protein, the cannabinoids and the terpenes and into these pockets. And basically when it, it's, it creates a water solubility because it's a nanotechnology so that the particle size is very small. And, it's, and the proteins are water soluble. It doesn't change the cannabinoids at all because that you can't do because that's the drug element. You don't wanna to touch that. You wanna keep that in its pure form. And what it does is actually, when you take the cannabis product orally, we're getting it into your body in 15 minutes as opposed to an hour and a half for a normal oral delivery. And it doesn't change the flavor of the drink? Or, it, or whatever it, it actually mitigates it. It actually takes some of the bitterness. CBD has a bitterness and so does THC. And actually, this torques down that bitterness significantly, so it's much milder, much less aftertaste. You know, the uh, there are a lot of people who are betting big on drinks, right? Um, and if you look at the data on consumption amongst consumers, you know, there's flour, there's vaping; those are the top, you know, one and two. There's tinctures, there's edibles. Drinks are like so far down. Do you do you believe that there is a, a legit significant market for drinks, or is this, are, you know, is this because a lot of the the big companies who have invested in this space are drink or alcohol companies, and they're saying, you know, people are used to drinking a beer and drinking a, a glass of wine, and now they're going to want to drink their cannabis. It's interesting. I'll tell you the truth. Uh, for oh, no, change. no, no, no. Please <laughs> lie. I want you to lie to me. Thank you. I am actually not a big believer in the beverage industry. Frankly, I think people who are taking cannabis don't feel like taking it by a, a drink. If you want to get high, get high. You could take a capsule. You could take it. But, you know, it, it, it's there's no there has to, drinking is a pleasure. Drinking alcohol, drinking a good scotch, a great wine, a great beer. Those are fun. Drinking cannabis is not fun. So, you know, it's just, I don't, I don't see it as a mix, you know, personally. But I can't argue that the industry is growing. I don't know how long it's going to last. You uh, were just talking a little bit about the, the kind of the structure of, of how, how these proteins work. And it's, I think I read somewhere that you basically see it as like a fisherman's vest that just picks up, you know, uh, the <laughs> between the top. That's to true. I have said that. I think it's a great analogy. Um, but can you talk about how that, you know, you said earlier in this conversation that very little of cannabis in general gets absorbed. So does this help with the absorption process or, um, yeah. If normally, if you take a cannabis product into yours, if you in, ingest a cannabis product, if you take a gummy or if you take a, uh, you know, a beverage, for example, uh, you, it takes about uh, an hour and a half to get in and maybe a little less with a beverage. But it, actually, you only get about 10 to 15 percent of the cannabinoids into your body. Uh, our process will increase that over 50 percent. So that's a fivefold increase, which is an enormous powered product. And the other part is that it actually will stay in your body for a controlled amount. We can have it in there for an hour. We can have it in there for eight hours. It's, we can control that process. So Bill, does that mean, does that mean if you're taking a, for argument's sake, a 10 milligram gummy, you're really only getting one milligram of bioavailable THC and, and CBD. And that what you're doing is you would actually, if, if a gummy manufacturer was using your technology, 
you'd get all 10 milligrams? No, we'd get about five to six as opposed to one. But you're, but, but seriously, like if you're eating a, a 10 milligram gummy, you're literally only getting one milligram of, of the active ingredients. One to one and a half. Yeah. So, you know, Washington state recently, there was a bill um, put into the Washington state legislature to limit the amount of THC in um, edible and vaping products at, and capping it at 10%. Your technology would enable a lot of these companies to still have a product that has you know, some oomph to it because you know, if you are a patient used to consuming something you know, that's 50 milligrams and, and in essence you're only getting five, if they used your technology, they could give you a 10 milligram gummy and you'd still get between five and six, six milligrams of, of active ingredient. Am I thinking that through, right? Absolutely correct. So, okay. That's, that's absolutely fascinating. So why, why is that not more widely known um, about the limits on what you're actually consuming or getting or, 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 or getting access to? Um, you know, because all of these big edible manufacturers, not that they're that big, you know, they're, they tout, you know, the amount of THC in their product. But do they know that the actual bioavailability is significantly less? Um, they should. It's publicly available and it's been known for 30 years. It's not this is not new. Remember, THC has gone through a drug approval process. CBD is actually not the first cannabinoid approved. THC is it's in, it's in the 80s, 1980s. And it's um, it was approved for specific indications to support cancer patients. So all this, all those products went through extremely rigorous testing of exactly how much gets into the body. So this is not hearsay. This is hard facts. The average dose that's getting in is around 10%, up between 10 and 15%. This is well known, and the CBD is the same, which is why they have to give massive doses in order to get a therapeutic effect. That's, this is really fascinating. Um, and I'm stealing the next question. So you guys are not a, a consumer. Canorex is not a consumer facing company, right? Um, you're much more of a B2B. So how are you, who are your potential or current customers or clients and, and how are you communicating to them other than through public relations, full disclosure, you guys are a KCSA client. So uh, other than the earned media, how are you educating the industry as to what you guys are doing? So we've been doing this research now for about five years. And, you know, somebody once said to me, You're, I'm an anomaly in the cannabis industry because I first uh, research, then I speak, as opposed to speaking first and then figuring out if what I said made sense. So <laughs> the, uh, so we were in a, really pretty much in a stealth mode, which is not a compliment or a criticism. It's just the way we function. We wanted to make sure our data was strong and our data was good. And now I think in 2020, we feel very comfortable about our data package and the products that we offer. And we are sort of ready to say, okay, now let's engage the right companies and the right partners, because that's critical in every industry and particularly in this industry to bring our products to market in an efficient way. So we're getting a lot of interest, more interest than we can handle. And we're just looking for the right partners to do that. in. We have talked a lot about the show I mean, on the show and we are, you know, we have a lot of investors listening, um, you know, putting on your your business hat and your entrepreneurial hat. Uh, the cash crunch in this industry has has just, you know, 
been so widespread. How are you guys navigating uh, these these choppy, you know, capital markets waters? So interestingly enough, we're we're not that affected by it at this stage simply because a we're not a consumer facing company. We're a technology company. So our 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 costs are all focused into R and D. So they're relatively reasonable. Um, the uh, and we will then provide a product to a company who's already selling product to make his own products better. So he knows what he's getting and he can quantify the benefits that he's that he's will get from this. In other words, if I'm making this much product and now I'm going to get a premium product, what's my markup? What's my differentiation? What's my marketing strategy? And we're getting a very warm welcome in the industry that our technology will bring those benefits to the to their consumer base and that can be translated into a a, a clear objective business uh, quantification. So we're not that affected by it. We also have our technologies really pretty much standalone. And we really targeted very interesting areas. But I, I hadn't gotten into the formulation, but we're looking at sleep and pain, and our data is seriously off the charts. Uh, in sleep, for example, and I think I'm just sharing this with you because I think it's it's interesting and you know, I think you'll appreciate it. You know, if you think about what the problem with uh, sleep disorders are, we all have friends, they, they either can't fall asleep, they wait, they go to sleep, but they wake up after a few hours and they, they spend the rest of their night staring at the walls, or they sleep for the long enough for a long enough time, but they it's not a restful sleep, so they're constantly tired, so they're suffering from a, a limited wakefulness during the day. So, but cannabis is a lot of different active molecules. So what we can do actually by using the active molecules that are in there and sort of upregulating and downregulating them, we actually were able to modify all aspects of that. But not only that, we know exactly which molecules are doing what. So we can control, and we know which molecules do this, your onset of sleep. We can control the amount of time that you sleep, and we can control how restful your sleep will be. So, so wait, you, you can get, you can get well, people yeah. into theta sleep quickly? Say it again. So you're telling you what you're. I think what you're saying is that you can help people get into a, a theta band of sleep, right, where the brain is refreshing, because ultimately the value of sleep is, you know, it lets it lets the brain clean out some of the the amyloids that build up, and 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 theta sleep and REM sleep are really where the the good work happens. Am I, am I wrong about that? Am I misunderstanding? No, you're right about that, but there's two different ways to measure that parameter. So just for the sake of pure correctness, that's a radio technology that you basically attach electrodes to the, to the, uh, to the animal's head or to the human head. It's, it's, it's non-invasive, but we actually measure it by actually a wakefulness. In other words, how many, and that's the classic pharma model, how often are these subjects or mice or humans waking up during their sleep or stirring during their sleep? And that's how we measure it. Okay. And is this, are, are you going to license this? Are you going to yes. build your own brand? So, and yes. Are, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, cause I didn't know if you're going to build your own consumer brand or we want it to be, no, we're not going to build our own facility, but we're going to build our own brand. Uh, we, and we want the, our, our licensing companies to utilize that brand. What is, do you have a brand name yet? No, not, we do, but we're, we're not sharing yet because we haven't trademarked it yet. Uh, <laughs> but open to new suggestions if you have any. Well, you know, it actually, it makes, this, is, this fits with what I was thinking with my next question because Israel has always been a great place for VCs to invest. It's been such a great haven for the creation of technological and medical breakthroughs. But 
you know, for the most part, Israel as a country and, and Israeli companies have done a, a mediocre job at best at creating consumer facing brands. You know, I can only think of really one company that that created a consumer brand that that, you know, actually two. You know, there's there's um, uh, SodaStream and then Teva. Right. Other than that. I can't think of an Israeli brand that has done, you know, become part of the global consciousness. Why is it that you guys are so good at making such amazing, groundbreaking stuff, but seem to have such a hard time selling it? (laughs) It's a great question. It's really a great question. I think it's like, you know, the unanswerable question. I don't know because, but maybe it's an attitude like we think we're good at everything. And maybe (laughs) that's the critical flaw. (laughs) So. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it's it's just, I mean, it's true though. It's you know, true. It's, we suck at marketing. It's true. <laughs> I, I say it about myself. So we'll help you with the names for these products, and we'll market the hell out of them for you. Sounds great. <laughs> Sounds great. So I, if we could flip to the U.S. for for a moment, you know, as we hopefully get closer to cannabis federal legalization here in the U.S., should cannabis companies continue to approach medical cannabis? products similar to how the FDA approaches developing pharmaceutical drugs, um, or is there a better way? So it's an interesting question because I, I, a lot of people are talking about descheduling cannabis as opposed to rescheduling cannabis, and it's a major, major difference. If they reschedule cannabis, that means they will down-regulate, in other words, they'll take it from a Schedule one down to, let's say, a, a two or a three or some combination, depending on the levels of THC, that's going to transform the cannabis industry as they know it, because all of a sudden it's federally legal, which is be, sort of be careful what you wish for. Most of the con- companies that are out there will not qualify. Their GMP levels are not sufficient, they're, and they're not even close. Their, their, their quality control systems are inefficient. It's they have no idea what they're asking for. So if the if the federal government reschedules cannabis, the industry will change radically, and most of the companies that you now know about will be gone. A whole new range of companies will come in, mostly pharma and large scale companies, which may be good for the industry and may be bad for the industry. It's hard to tell. Well, it'll be good for it from a a, a, a pharmaceutical perspective, right? I mean, the the question is. It'll also be good for the consumer because he'll yes. get safer, cleaner products. So can you talk about how, how you guys work with testing, right? Because everything you have described is making cannabis more bioavailable, safer, cleaner, more efficacious. Um, you know, are the testing labs ready to work with you or how, how will that work? So it's interesting because when we originally approached the Israeli government for a a license to do research in cannabis, they asked us to do them a favor. They asked us to set up a, a high quality and an analytical laboratory, which would fit uh, international criteria. And in exchange for that, they would also give us a license. It was sort of a quid pro quo. And um, we're, we're very familiar the, with that term here. So, so <laughs> <laughs> there was no quid pro pro. It was a it was a perfect call. It was a perfect call. <laughs> so, anyway, the uh, the the point was that we set up what's called an ISO seventeen zero two five laboratory, which meets very high standards. And until very recently, and we may still be the only lab that does that. We don't. So we know what it's like to be an analytical lab. So the labs basically are very comfortable working with us simply because. A, we are a lab. We do the high, we do the government analysis here in Israel. 
and they basically only use us for that process. And at the same time, um, we, we have a great interface with other labs because we're, we speak their language. So the, there's no problem on that end. Um, I, I, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's, um, it's, you know, it's just the way the industry grew. Let's go back to snake oil for a second. Um, you know, because CBD generally is being attributed these miraculous qualities and most, most consumers, especially, um, new consumers to whether it be straight up cannabis or CBD don't understand the difference between CBD, CBN, CBG, terpenes, all that stuff. Can you give just a, a, like a, a CBD for dummies explanation about how this stuff works? So basically there's about 140, now about 150 different cannabinoids in the cannabis blend. And the, the, the main ones, meaning the, in terms of the amount of, of uh, molecular material that's in the cannabis plant are THC and CBD, which is why everybody's looking at those, because they, you, you can see them very clearly in, their, in, the, uh, in the molecular analysis. CBD is not psychoactive. It has a lot of therapeutic benefits in, in vitro testing, and it clearly has some in clinical testing as well, for example, epilepsy. Uh, some people tout it for reduction of inflammation and for pain. The great preclinical data, very limited clinical data, which is the, really the parameter of is it working. Uh, THC is highly psychoactive, and it has, but it, on the other hand, it's non-addictive, and it, the lethal dose of, of THC is basically off the charts in a positive way. In other words, you can't really kill yourself with THC, which is very unusual for a psychoactive. So it has a lot of benefits there for use in a lot of different in, uh, you know, conditions, let's say, for the human body, whether it's PTSD or whether it's uh, you know, psychological counseling or whatever it is, it can be used to modify brain function and, and without toxicity. So it's just a matter of you know, choosing your weapon and figuring out how to work with it. So is it a little unfair that, that Lewis has called it snake oil when there are so many you know, Thank positive you. attributes. Well, no, I'm just saying, I don't want to be part of a problem that, you know, the way we talk about it, I want us to be careful. Like it can't, it's not curing cancer, but if it's, you know, helping someone with epilepsy or helping someone with nausea or whatever the, you know, like, I right, don't know, those, I, I just want to those, be careful with the language. But those disease states have been tested, right? I mean, you know, GW Pharma did tens of millions of dollars of testing to get Epidiolex to market to prove it works again, you know, uh, in treating tremors associated with epilepsy. You know, it's hard. People are ascribing qualities to this stuff without the, the clinical data, without the double blind trials. They're just saying, I have a friend who that that's not enough. And that's that, that, that worries me. I'll tell you, yes, it has some positive attributes, but they're way over claiming. And there are some toxicity issues with CBD in very large doses, although I can't imagine people are, uh, are taking them in those doses, but that's the doses that they gave at Epidiolux. There were some liver toxicity issues there, which are, which are frightening, actually. Um, so um, that's what concerns the FDA. But remember, there's another federal organization which is monitoring this situation very carefully, the Federal Trade Commission. Okay, you can't make false marketing claims. So there's no question they're watching. But they're trying oh, to figure yeah. out how to deal with a state-based regulatory environment. Look, you know, Cure Relief had its its products taken off the shelves. Um, I think at CVS because of 
of claim of claims. So remember, they went federal in their marketing. That's yes. why that, that's why they were targeted. They, it's hard for them to target someone who stays within the state. You know, it's funny because we're, we're, we're not really aware of it because we think of ourselves as the United States, but we forget what it means. It really is a united, a united group of states. But when you, when you, so we think of the federal government as our government, but the reality is our governments are the state-based governments and the federal government sits as an umbrella organization above that. So as long as the state is staying within state lines, they have an enormous amount of freedom. So let's go back to vaping. I think that's been, um, uh, you know, one of the big topics, especially, you know, in 2019. And, and you know, it seems to have died down a little bit, the, you know, some of the, the health concerns, at least in the mainstream media. Um, but, you know, you guys are, are coming up with solutions that are um, very based on, um, you know, inhalation technology. And, you know, so how are you thinking of, of next steps um, you know, in in both communicating to to the public that this is that this is safe, um, you know, or are there? I guess that's my question: is is how are you going to communicate this, and how much is the vaping crisis? How much pushback are you finding from any of your clients? Uh, it's, it's a very interesting question, but I'll, I'll sort of answer. You know, you you ask like we're being, let's be Jewish. I'll answer a question with a question. <laughs> <laughs> But why would you do? Why it, would so you do I, that? I get it. Why would you? Why would you do this? <laughs> so I'll give you. How many? You know, when, when people smoke a cannabis joint, they'll generally go out, smoke the joint, and come back. People who vape are vaping all day long. They they just have that vape right in their pocket. They pull it out, and every fifteen minutes, they're taking a, a, another vape. It's like the action of vaping is so clean, it's almost the, the action itself is addictive. Same thing with e-cigs, by the way. And so but I think that's part of the problem of vaping is they're constantly exposing their lungs as opposed to a brief period of, let's say, two or three or four joints during the 24-hour period. They're vaping every 15 minutes. So they're hitting their lungs with that stuff four times a day. And with the, with the, with the uh, Center for Disease Control basically said is they believe it's the vitamin E acetate that's in the, uh, in the solutions. But there's glycerol in these vaping solutions. There's propylene glycol in these vaping solutions. Dumping that into your lungs every 15 minutes is not healthy. So what we actually did, to, and this was our sort of our contribution to this, if you think about what I told you earlier about the vapor capture technology process, it works by heating, right? So let's say I set my dial and my technology for extraction at 180 degrees. Everything that came out of the plant is, sol is volatile at 180 degrees, right? Whereas if I did it in a solvent based, I have no control over the temperature range, what molecules are in there. They could be 230, 240, or 100. So by doing that, I can actually create for you a pure disc of cannabis oil that you turn your vape onto 180, everything will volatize. So I can give you a pure cannabis oil, no excipients to vape with. You still shouldn't vape every 15 minutes, but it's the cleanest vape that's available. And it's more bioavailable and you have to take less to get the same effect. It's all, all of the stuff that we've already talked about. Yes. Um, you know, we're, we're, we've been talking now for about 45 minutes and I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, so I want to ask a question that, you know, speaks to the heart of entrepreneurship because that's, you know, you are an entrepreneur by nature. 
um, and have been successful. And I believe, and, and anybody who's listened to any of our shows over the last year or so, that I truly believe that success is the child of failure. Um, that, you know, you can step in success and not know how you got there. But if you are intentionally successful, it is because of the, the experiences that you've had based on the failures that you've had. Can you talk about a failure you've had that's, that's shaped you, whether it be from a business perspective, a personal perspective, but, but some painful lesson that you learned that helped you get to where you are today? Yeah, I'll, uh, yes, I'll be happy to. And I will. I, I'll, I used to lecture a lot in the professional area in educating dentists on how to be better dentists. And I had a slide. And the slide said, uh, good judgment comes from experience. And the next slide said, experience comes from bad judgment. Okay, <laughs> because that's absolutely true. So I, I mean, there are many things I, I'm very good and very dogged and maybe, you know, maybe, uh, you know, um, pugnacious in a sense to uh, in solving problems. And so I generally don't let failure push me down, but sometimes a hard no is much better than a maybe. So we have had clinical trials where we, we were positive we were going to be successful. The data broke exactly as we intended it to. And then when we looked at the data, I just remember sitting there holding my head in my hands and saying, this can't be. This simply can't be. <laughs> this is not what we expected. But you look at what the data shows, and if it's a no, you put it to the side and move on. Because what you're, what's reflected in the clinical trial, the data is data. And you, you, you can analyze it all you want, but if it, it proves to be no, it's no. So I think the, the message would be a failure is just like you said, it's a stepping stone. You'll either learn from it, you'll either drop a product that shouldn't have been developed to start with, or, or you'll give up, which a lot of people do, and I really do understand them. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. So, so last question. Um, you know, we've talked about there's there's been so much misinformation, um, you know, picked up by the media um, and, and often forgotten information. I mean, I think you know, early on in this conversation, both Lewis and I were, you know, you you we were we were you know expressing surprise at some of the stuff you're talking about, and you're like, guys, this is thirty years old. <laughs> um, so you know, what, what do you think the media is missing? Like, what's the story that you want to get up, you know, and read tomorrow in the Jerusalem Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? I, I think that we, we the, if you look at the industry, it's evolving. And I used to, I had, a, I gave a lecture actually at, at a cannabis conference where I called it the evolution of the revolution. The revolution took place. The train has left the station. A major change took place over the last decade where cannabis became accepted mainstream professionally as well as uh, consumers, as well as the population. So this is a massive change. I mean, let's just step back for a second and see what happened. Now it's the industry's responsibility and the public's responsibility to demand better products and to produce better products. So if I, the story that I really want to see is we're committed to excellence in this field, because if we're not committed to excellence, this field will just sort of wither on the vine, because it's it's just going to be go back to the way it was. It'll just be legal highs. But if we're committed to excellence, this could be a groundbreaking change, bigger than bringing tobacco into the industry, into into the new world. Well said. So, thank you, Dr. Levine, Bill. Um, that was excellent. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. And, uh, you know, it sounds great. Awesome. Thank you so much. Our thanks to Dr. Bill Levine, founder and chief science officer at CanRx. Uh, as always, thank you all for listening. We know that your time is valuable and how you choose to spend it and spending it with us is something that we never, ever take for granted. Um, if you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. Um, we're always looking for your feedback, for guest ideas, uh, comments on my really bad dad jokes, whatever. Um, please don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. And that's one take, Shay. One take.